0: Well, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, we're going to go to God's Word in a moment, but a reminder that we are in the second week of a sermon series called Away in the Wilderness. And it's the season leading up to Easter Sunday where we are mindful of and we reflect upon and we enter into the lengths of suffering that Jesus went through on the way to the cross. And this is so important for us because, you know, I don't know about you, but I live And perhaps we live in a culture that really doesn't know how to suffer well. In fact, we started this sermon series last week. Rebecca Bershe Morgan kicked it off for us. And if you missed that, I highly encourage you to go onto our YouTube channel. You can go to YouTube, look for Bel Air Church, look for that sermon from last week. You can actually experience the whole service. But what a great reminder that we have an opportunity to follow Jesus, As we talk about as a church, every day and everywhere with everyone, Jesus longs to be the Lord of every single area of our life. And as we get to today's topic of suffering in the midst of death and loss and grief, on one hand, I've really been looking forward to this this moment because I know that God is gonna move powerfully in it. But also on the other hand, I haven't been looking forward to this moment because to be honest with you, I'm not good at grieving. And I've experienced loss in my life, like you've experienced loss in your life. I can look back on all the decades and some of the most significant moments of loss have been when my younger brother tragically died or in the season when a doctor said to my wife and I, you know, if I were you, I would give up emotionally and financially on ever having kids. I think about the grief, in fact, of this last season of losing friends that I've been friends with for many, many years. I think of dreams that have died. I think of hopes that have long been in the grave. But also as a pastor, as you can imagine, I am surrounded by loss. And for nearly 20 years, I've been professionally, vocationally, someone who is around grief, around loss, around death, likely more than the average person. And yet I'm not good at it, and yet I'm growing. And I found personally, and this is gonna be a really personal message, I found personally that the only thing that has enabled me to grow And really being able to grieve well and to follow Jesus in the midst of grief is simply just looking at Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at Jesus. We're going to start in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, a really famous passage, one of the most famous deaths in the New Testament, the death of Lazarus. And we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to linger a little bit longer, perhaps, than we're used to on some things that we might see. But we're not going to stay there. We're going to come out of John and we're going to look at different moments in the life of Jesus. We're even going to go back to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Old Testament. And as we do so, my hope is that you would grow more and more in the image of Christ. That actually you would be transformed by the the power of the Holy Spirit during this hour, that you would begin to learn how to experience God in the midst of suffering, that you would be able to grieve like Jesus grieves and that you would be able to have hope because of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to open it up to John chapter 11. I'm gonna start in verse 28, but just to set the scene, Lazarus has died Sisters, Martha and Mary, have been grieving. We'll get to the picture of what that looked like in a moment. They've sent word to Jesus. Jesus is a friend, is somebody who they were close with, had shared meals with, had in their home before, uh, hasn't yet come back. And now they find themselves filled with anguish and disappointment and despair because not only has their brother died, it's been four days. And in Jewish culture, if you've been dead for four days, it's past the threshold that there's any hope. And even so much, this one that they believed could save their brother hasn't arrived. They're hopeless. Who knows, maybe they were blaming Jesus for not showing up on town in time. But here we have in John eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus finally making his way back to Bethany. He first has a conversation with Martha, who has left the house, has a conversation with him. During that conversation, before this section, she says two things. She says, If only you would just been here. Our brother Lazarus wouldn't have died. She had put her hopes in Jesus and he hadn't delivered. And then she goes on to say, but I believe that if you ask anything of God, God will give it to you. And in the midst of that interaction, Jesus reveals to her the truth of who he is. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And then Martha, after an interaction with Jesus, goes home. She talks to Mary, and this is where the narrative picks up. Let's watch what Jesus does. In verse 28 of John 11, when she, this is Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still the place where Martha had met him. He was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, cannot he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? This, friends, concludes the reading of God's word. As we say every week, thanks be to God. We'll finish what happens on the way to the tomb in a moment. But before we do that, let's take a look at what is happening here. You see, Martha, as I recounted earlier, uh, goes to Jesus. She speaks to him, we believe, eye to eye. She says two things. She goes back home and Mary now goes to Jesus. And she doesn't speak to Jesus eye to eye. She is at his feet. Two different postures going to Jesus. But Jesus receives them both fully. What I love about just that scene right there just that little detail is that sometimes we go to God eye to eye toe to toe and we talk directly like Martha does God if only but I believe but sometimes we go to God weeping like Mary at his feet and we don't yet believe we don't say God I believe that you'll do anything that he asks of you we just say God where were you Where have you been? And I love that Jesus receives both of them. He doesn't say, get up. Why don't you believe like Martha believed? He he receives her. That's the first detail that I want us to notice. That there is permission that as we come to God, to just come as we are. Martha came as she was and Mary came as she was and Mary was now at the feet of Jesus and she was weeping, the Gospel writer John says. Now, this is a written word so we don't hear what the sound of that weeping was. And in the English, you know, there's a lot of of spectrum that we might imagine what weeping looks and sounds like. It could be all the way over here of just, you know, kind of a, a calm, a collected, a put-together weeping. Or it could just be ugly, anguished-filled, wailing. Well, that's what's so helpful when we get to the Greek language, the language of the New Testament. In fact, there is a word that's used here that when Mary weeps and the others are weeping, it's a Greek word that's used 40 times in the New Testament, and it literally gives the picture of a person Wailing a shrieking animal. So I want you to picture the scene, if it helps to close your eyes, to to imagine this woman at the feet of Jesus who is wailing, screaming, who isn't holding it together, who isn't holding back, who isn't stuffing her emotion, who isn't calm, who isn't collected, Who hasn't channeled her emotion to just, you know, be this slight outpouring? She is wailing. She is overcome by grief at the loss of her brother, perhaps overcome at the loss of Jesus not being who she hoped he would be. Wailing. And everybody else was wailing. Now, I don't know about you, but I am very infrequently in the presence of people who wail because of grief. And yet I have been different places around the globe and I've seen on television and I have friends who have grown up in different cultures who perhaps culturally wailing in a season of grief is much more normal, is much more accepted. But for me, having grown up in the United States, kind of a modern world, It seems like, and this is just my experience, it seems like that wailing, uncontrollable sense is actually something that many people look down upon. And sadly, I've seen some Christians look down upon people who are wailing in grief, saying, Where's their faith? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't condemn her wailing, He doesn't minimize her wailing. He doesn't throw Bible verses at her in the midst of her wailing. He doesn't look at her and say, come on, get up, have faith, stop it, let's go, come on, don't you know who I am? What does he do? Well, something happens on the inside before something comes out. Take a look in John 11, verse 33 the decibel levels wailing around him of not just Mary and others. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, wailing, and the Jews who came with her were also weeping, wailing, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. Now, I want you to imagine what the Greek word picture provides here. Again, Greek, the language of the New Testament says this, that that phrase greatly disturbed in spirit in the English language actually gives the image of a a ferocious stallion, a wild horse that has now been threatened and is now snorting with rage, is stamping, is rising up. That's the image of what is happening on the inside of Jesus while she and the others are wailing. And he's not rising up in anger at what she's doing. He's rising up in anger at the threat of what has caused her wailing and its death. You know, some of you, you're around horses and you know what that's like when you when you spook a horse, when a horse gets angry in the beginning. Some of you, maybe you've watched westerns, maybe you love the show Yellowstone or 1883 and you've seen some of those scenes where, you know, the the intensity of the animal that is larger than life begins to snort and and huff and just rage. That is the image of the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, in the face of death. And this is absolutely crucial for us to catch this. That Jesus does something that I see not done around the world. He doesn't accept death. He doesn't say death, you know, it's, it's natural. He doesn't say, you know, death is, is something that, that we're all gonna experience. He doesn't say, you know, death is just part of the circle of life. He doesn't say, you know, death is just this, this transition into sleep. It's this thing that we shouldn't fear. He doesn't do that. He rages against it. It reminds me of the, the famous Dylan Thomas Poem, The Welsh poet who died far too young. And now, you know, whenever I read this, I can't picture or hear in my mind this poem without Michael Caine's voice. You know, the great actor in the midst of the movie, Interstellar, who reads this. It's changed this poem for me. But he writes this. He says, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. That poem captures the tip of the iceberg of what is rising up in Jesus because Jesus knows that death is not natural. One of the greatest deceptions that God's enemy has ever done is to convince you and me that death is part of the natural order. When in actual fact, what we learn from Scripture is that death actually, in God's created order, in God's design, in God's original intent, out of the overflow of God's heart to create all of creation, good and humanity in the image of God that is very good, that death and loss and sin, all of it, that actually all of it is an intruder from somewhere else, that it is not natural, that it is a foreign substance, that should never be accepted as normal, that should never be accepted as something that just is. You see, I think one of the reasons why we in modernity and even Christians in the modern world, we're not shaped by scripture, we're not shaped by how Jesus grieves when we grieve, we're shaped by a world that just says, you know, you just got to learn to accept death. And yes, the world says you've got to grieve, but it's really, it's more for you to just get it out. Don't let it in, just, you just get it out. Don't let it bottle up inside. Yes, that's true, but not because it's natural, but because God hates death. And something rises up in Jesus that I want you to see that causes him not just to, to snort with rage. It goes on and it says this, Not just that he was greatly disturbed in spirit, but that he was deeply moved. The word picture here is that his his insides begin to churn. That he is filled with a gut-wrenching anguish. I want you to catch the physicality of what is happening on the inside. That many of us, we stuff, we medicate, we just get busy to get through it. We try to just put on a positive face, but Jesus, whom God longs for us to, to see is the most beautiful human that has ever lived without sin, God in the flesh, we need to see in him how enraged he was in the face of death, how disturbed he was, how anguished he was in death. That's what's happening the inside, and out of the overflow of that, something comes out, and it's not words. You see, he spoke the truth to Martha, but he spoke something equally as powerful to Mary. Take a look. Verse 34, he said to the others, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus, verse 35, Jesus wept. Now please, in your mind, don't imagine a singular, perfect tear falling off the face to the ground, causing a bouquet of flowers to rise up. This is not calm, collected Jesus, just, oh, little tear. Because that's the picture that I had when I was a kid of when Jesus wept. In actual fact, the Greek word here that is used is actually the only time this Greek word is used in the entirety of the New Testament. It gives the image not of Jesus wailing, That word is used for Mary. That word is used for the others around. That word is used 40 different times. This word gives the picture of one who bursts into tears, who begins to sob. There is a quietness to it, but it is a uncontrollable seeming from the outside, heaving of the body of tears. This is the Son of God. Grieving in the midst of Mary's grief in a way that, man, it reminds me of my son Judah. There's been times, he's not a wailer, but he's a heaving sobber. I can think of a few times in my life, though I've never wailed, I can think of times where I've had uncontrollable heaving sobs. There was a season in my life. I can't even count how many nights it was that that was me. I mentioned in the beginning that my younger brother had died accidentally. I was just out of college. I didn't know how to process it. Didn't know how to talk about it. I stuffed it. Our family we didn't talk about it too much. As a young believer, I I, I thought that I was supposed to just you know just okay just have faith that he's in a better place. He's with God, but In public, I didn't allow myself to to go there. I didn't allow myself to allow what was on the inside to come out. And yet when I was home alone, night after night, I would sob, missing my brother Kent. And in that season, though I had never read the passage before, I read it many years later. The experience was a lot like King David. And the Psalm 6 from King David, which by the way, the Psalms or the the song book, the, the, the prayer book of the Old Testament, two thirds of them are Psalms of lament. So of all the songs here, that we might think are just songs of praise, of joy, of glory, of thankfulness. Actually, that's only a third of them. Two-thirds of them, the great majority of them, are psalms like this. Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because of all my foes, though I did not know it at the time. That's what I was experiencing. But what I did know at the time was another psalm, also written by King David. A few verses later, this was the only scripture that I read throughout that season. In the midst of my sobbing, in the midst of my tears at night, I would read Psalm 13, and I was shocked that God would allow a man after God's own heart, King David has described, to have this level of vulnerability, to have this level of honesty, to have this level of uh, authenticity. When he says, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me. Oh Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death and my enemy will say I have prevailed. My foes shall rejoice because I am shaken. Back then at the loss of my brother, just me and the Lord, this gave language to what I felt and it gave me permission to do what I couldn't do in public to my friends or my family, to do with God something that King David was doing and wasn't strict down with lightning, to do something that I thought when I was younger I wasn't allowed to do, to say, God, where are you? Why would you allow this? And night after night, somehow I feel like the Spirit of God formed me to just have permission to lay my soul bare before God not happy clappy, but in the depth of grief. And I would read this night after night and realize God must be a pretty big God. God must be a pretty present God. God must be a pretty embracing God to allow King David and now me right now to bear my soul before God, to perhaps even shake my fist at God and say, God, where are you? Why would you allow this to happen? And in the midst of that, I experienced what I believe Mary experienced in the midst of her grief. A God who is willing to enter into the depth of our grief. A God who says, I'm here. A God who sobs with us. A God who snorts with rage. Who is filled with anguish of the things that we are anguished over. A God who enters in. And I found that the more I opened up my heart, the more I opened up my mind, the more I opened up my grief to God, The more healing, the more presence, the more peace filled me up. And the irony was that it didn't minimize it, it actually allowed it to grow to its maximal experience. You see, God meeting me in it actually allowed me to realize just how much loss was under the surface. It wasn't just the loss of what was, but the loss of all that could have been. And perhaps you in this moment right now, you've, you've experienced loss, maybe this year in your lifetime. Where are you on the spectrum? Do you think that you have permission to go before God and say, God, where are you? Do you think that you have permission to go to God and say, God, you've you've hidden yourself from me. God, God, why would you allow this to happen? Where are you on the spectrum? I want you to know that God longs for you to move closer and closer and closer through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a person like Mary, a person like King David, who can say, I'm wrecked. How long? Must my tears be food? And the language of the Psalms puts to words the depth of our loss. It's God's heart for you to enter into, to allow yourself to be honest with the suffering, the depth of, the loss, the grief all that was and could be in our life. Unless we enter into it, unless we go through it, we actually never get to experience what King David also writes in the Psalm, Psalm 23, a famous Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I love that he says, though I walk through the valley, he doesn't say, though I go around the valley. He doesn't say I flew over the valley on a speeding jet. He doesn't say I, I numbed myself as we went through the journey. I zoned out. I, I watched something and I just medicated myself. No, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There is movement, yes, but it's something that is a journey through something. In this Lent season, my hope and my prayer and our team's prayer is that your, your life would be disrupted enough, that your you know, busyness of life and your schedule would be disrupted enough to be open to how God wants to lead you through some of the paths in your life that you've been unwilling to go through, that there are wilderness patches in your life that God wants to make a way, that God wants to lead you through, That as you are allowing yourself before God to enter into that wilderness of grief, to actually slow down and allow yourself to grieve the way Jesus grieves, acknowledging that death is not natural, that grief is something that God doesn't want for us. But God doesn't minimize it. He enters into it with sobs, heaving sobs, the more that we can look at Jesus who meets us in it, the more we can be willing to not just go through it, to walk through it, and in some ways to be carried through it. Jesus is saying to you right now, let me in. Allow me to be the Lord of your loss. Allow me to be on the throne of your grief. It's a remarkable picture. But when we don't invite Jesus to be that, we put other things on the throne of our heart. We put other things on the throne of our grief. And it might be the, just have a positive attitude is currently on the throne. Or it might be, you know, God's already defeated death. I don't need to worry about this. Maybe that brushing over the links that Jesus was willing to enter into is the thing that's on the throne. But there can never be true hope unless there's acknowledgement of true grief. You see, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we are called to grieve with hope. Both of those things we are called to do. We're called to grieve as Jesus grieves and we're called to hope as Jesus hopes. Jesus wants for you to extend an invitation in this moment into the loss of your life. I'm telling you, from my own experience, that is not an easy thing. It is a painful thing. That's why it's It's hard, that's why we call it suffering. But I found in my own life, though I am growing in this area, that when I invite Jesus into my grief and when I lay my soul bare before Jesus, something happens, a transformation happens. It doesn't happen instantaneously, but I experience a God who is simply present in my grief. And I want that for you in your life. But let's take a look more at the life of Jesus because it's not just that. As John 11 continues to go on, verse 38, then Jesus again greatly disturbed. It's that same language of a a horse snorting, raging, that Dylan Thomas poem. He is raging on the inside. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, It's already been four days and the stench is awful. And Jesus said to her, did I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and says, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you have sent me. Then he said this, and he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. And if we could have heard the ferocious velocity of the words that Jesus spoke to death and Lazarus dead in that tomb, I believe we would have been shocked at what we would have heard. This is not Jesus, meek and mild, in a picture that the modern American church sometimes believes that Jesus is just quiet and collected. You know, the word meek, I think because it rhymes with weak in the English language, we've tied those two things together. The word meek also in the Greek language gives the image of a wild stallion in all of its power, in all of its strength, allowing itself to be restrained for the sake of a rider to channel its energy and to ride upon it, to bridle a horse, And for a horse to have all of its strength focused in a direction is actually the Greek word for the word meek. And Jesus, in all of his power, the Son of God in the flesh, who spoke all things into existence, who the writer of Hebrews says, who holds things all together by the power of his word, Jesus, the most powerful being in the cosmos, as part of the triune Godhead, speaks with the ferociousness against the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And I want you to see that. I want you to see the rage that Jesus has against the unnatural experience of death. And how Jesus is willing to not only accept and receive, but also to enter into the grief of Mary and those around and Martha and those around. But what he does out of the overflow of what rises up in him, he moves through it, disturbed by it, filled with anguish about it because it is unnatural. It's not part of God's order. He hates it. And he speaks against it. in Lazarus, miraculously, Beyond all hope comes out of the tomb. And what Jesus does in that moment is a foreshadow of what will be done in the future. You see, Lazarus, his resurrection, you could say it this way, was temporary. One day, we don't know when, many years later, Lazarus died again. And yet Jesus said something to Martha before that whole experience. He said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Do you believe? And, and she responded and she says, yes, I believe that my brother will rise in the resurrection at the last day. You see, in the Jewish culture, they believe that there would be a general resurrection at the end of time. But Jesus says, no. No. I am the resurrection, I am the life. All who believe in me, though they die, will live. And what he is saying there before Lazarus' resurrection, which was just a temporary resurrection, also happened to be before he went to the cross. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, and I want you to, to see and I want you to picture And again, as we see Jesus, I found in my own life, it helps me grow in my ability to not only grieve, but also in my ability to have hope. And when we see Jesus on the cross, I want you to imagine, without reading the fullness of it, the the prophet Isaiah, many centuries before, foreshadows and speaks a prophecy about the Messiah, who is Jesus, the Son of God. And he says that on the cross, that he would be accursed, that he would be stricken, that he would be crushed, that he would take upon himself all the sorrow, all the grief, all the iniquities, all the disease, all the sin of all of humanity. In other words, Jesus on the cross experiences, and again, this is a mystery to me, I cannot wrap my mind around this, I cannot wrap language around this, but somehow Jesus experiences on the cross the sum total of all the collective loss across the globe, throughout human history, in a singular experience. And when I look at Jesus, Entering into the grief of Mary, relating to her grief, entering into her grief, I moved a lot. But when I see Jesus on the cross, and when I begin to imagine the links that Jesus would go through to experience a cosmic loss again, there's such mystery here, and I can't wrap human language around it, but But many things were lost on the cross. Not just Jesus' life, but somehow the eternal relationship that Jesus as the Son of God had with God the Father and God the Spirit. There were things there that I don't fully comprehend, but there was a separation, there was a loss, there was a disconnect, there was a death that was not just physical, it was spiritual, it was emotional, it was psychological, it was cosmic. I can't wrap my mind around the loss that Jesus went through. And when I look at it and when I linger and I allow myself to just let my imagination run wild, at the depth and the breadth and the height and the magnitude of loss that Jesus experienced on the cross and the grief that he went through, And I realize that scripture says that he did it out of love for you and for me, that he did it not as a victim, but to to be victorious over all the things that cause the loss, to be victorious over sin, to be victorious over injustice, to be victorious over oppression, to be victorious over disease, to be victorious over death itself, that he was willing to lose it all to gain us. The more I look at that, I realize that Jesus doesn't just enter into our suffering to relate to us alongside us. No. When I begin to realize that Jesus has actually experienced my grief, this is, a, this is a mature, highly profound theological thought. That the depth of the loss and the grief, that you're just beginning to allow yourself to, to feel, Jesus has already felt the fullness of it. Let me say it another way. if uh, If the true depth of the loss of my brother was the depth of the Grand Canyon, and maybe so far, 20 years after his death, I've only gone down, you know, a mile, a fraction of the depth of the Grand Canyon. When I realized that Jesus has actually, on the cross, somehow, already, in advance, before my brother died, before I experienced the grief, that somehow he's already experienced the full depth of my grief? That he's already gone down to the depths? As the Nicene Creed says, that he actually, he's descended so far, he's even descended to the depths of hell? When I realized that Jesus has gone before me in the journey of grief, not just in my own life, but in everybody's life, something happens in me. I begin to realize that Jesus, who invites us to follow him every day and everywhere with everyone, is actually inviting us to go and to descend into the journey and the depths of grief that he's already gone down. And because he's already gone down to the depths of the bottom of death itself and grief itself, he says, follow me because I've already been there. And the beauty of this season is we know that Easter is coming, that he goes there, but he doesn't stay there and he bursts forth from the tomb on the Easter day and he defeats death once and for all, that he bursts forth from the tomb. But he's saying you can't get to Easter Sunday without going through the depths of Good Friday. You can't get to the empty tomb without the grave first. You can't get to healing in a depth of an experience of the richness of hope without following Jesus into the depth of the grief of loss and despair. Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life and Lord of Savior of your life is saying, would you follow me into the katabasis, that is the Greek word, into the descent, into the darkness. Because as you follow me there, you will find what King David found as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Hope. A God who is with us. A God who suffers with us. A God who sometimes carries us. And a God who leads us to a future place. The last image that I want to leave you with that I often look at Jesus that helps me grow in my ability to grieve well, to suffer well, is the image of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes again. You know, as we look at all these different pictures of Jesus, in some ways they almost provide us a, a kaleidoscope of who he is, a, a multifaceted diamond. It enables us to somehow see Jesus in, in a greater depth and a, a vibrancy. Listen to this image of what the Apostle John writes about when Jesus will return again. This is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. A passage that I don't really talk about much. John says, Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name inscribed King of Kings, and Lord of lords this is a picture of the resurrected victorious Jesus Jesus after he defeats death and bursts forth from the tomb which by the way he breaks the longest winning streak of all time Death was on a roll up to that moment when he burst forth from the tomb but he began something that he is in the midst of completing and finishing You see, we still experience death after his resurrection. But there's going to be this future day in which he comes uh, again. And it says here that he comes with fury, with might, with power to wage war. Not against people, but against death. Not against humanity, but against Satan. Not among some, but against sin. And there's this image of him coming that Paul also picks up in 1 Thessalonians 4. And he says, friends, we need to grieve, but we need to grieve with hope because when Jesus comes again, we will meet him. And the Greek language that is used there, when we meet him actually gives a very vibrant, a very ancient picture of what used to happen when a king would go off to war when a city would stay back, wondering what would happen, would the king return? Would the army return? Would they be victorious? When they, finally, when they get word that the king had won, that their side was victorious, when the king would return, the people in the city, they wouldn't wait inside the gates for the king to come in. They would rush out. They would go outside. They would leave their homes and they would meet the king and the triumphant procession as the king made his way back into the city. And they would rejoice at all the king had done. Not that they had done, but what the king had accomplished. And their whole perspective in an instant would be transformed. They would go back into the same city. The city formerly that they were filled with wondering. Filled with doubt, filled with fear. They would go back into that same city and they would see it anew through a victorious lens. And when Paul says that when Jesus comes again, we will meet with Jesus, we don't meet with Jesus and stay in the clouds. We meet with Jesus like meeting a coming king. We meet him as he comes here, as he reestablishes God's original intent on the new heavens and the new earth. And this remarkable truth, this future reality, that when we pray, God, would your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we get to experience the in the already and not yet of that. We get to participate in it. When we enter into our grief, like Jesus enters into our grief, and when we enter into the grief of others, as Jesus did with Mary, as we don't minimize, as we don't brush over, as we don't throw Bible verses at people, but we actually follow Jesus into the depth of somebody else's grief. When we are disturbed, when we say not... You know, everybody dies. We say, yeah, death is awful. Cancer is awful. Loss is not what God intended. I am so sorry. I hate this with you. When we sob with people, when we wail with people, we are following Jesus the way he wants us to be ambassadors for him. And when we do that, we experience right now what we will experience entirely in the future. Well, what's that going to look like? Let me end with this. This is Revelation 21, and this future reality. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice From the throne, saying, see, the home of God, the home of God is is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples. And God will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain Will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus, said, See, I am coming, and I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning. And the end, to the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. The first things one day will pass. What are the first things? The first things are what we're going through right now. It is all the grief, all the loss, all the death, But to say that the first things have passed away is to acknowledge that the first things were there in the first place. I love that Jesus doesn't just say, I'm making all things new. He says, there were the first things. That was the reason why I came. Out of love, I entered in. I didn't abandon you. Though you felt like it and I understand it, I was there all along and though I seemed silent, I was sobbing with you. Though it seemed like I wasn't answering, I was doing the long, slow work of transforming you from the inside out. But those first things, I have come to transform them so that rather than go older and older and weaker and weaker, And darker and darker, we will now grow stronger and stronger, more and more beautiful, brighter and brighter. That is what is to come. That's where we have hope, where Jesus says, I have defeated the unnatural thing that is death, that grieves me, that angers me, that enrages me. I have defeated it. When we hold both of those things in tension, when we see Jesus sobbing, and we see Jesus victorious. It doesn't cancel each other out and leave us in some weird, lukewarm place. It allows us to follow Jesus into the depth of death and despair, to walk through the way of the wilderness, to one day, that future day, be on the other side and to remark, to be overwhelmed in resurrected bodies, to dance, to sing, to laugh, to be reunited with our loved ones in a very personal, a very relational, very intentional place that is fully human, fully alive, more than we could ever imagine, spiritual and physical, for all of eternity. And that day we can say, Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Let Jesus meet you in your grief. And because he meets you there, may it give you hope for today and for tomorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have made a way. And your way is not to go around. Your way is not to minimize. Your way is to enter in, to descend, and to go through the depths of death and loss and despair. May we see you enter in. May we let you in and may we follow you there in our own lives and the lives of those around us. May we learn how to be people that truly grieve, that truly have hope. And because of that can be a light for those around us in the darkest times. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.